Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. This is the final chapter in this letter that we've been, been working through week after week. And so soon we will know what we're going to do this summer, um, but, but we still have a few more passages to get through here in Ephesians. So Ephesians 6, we're going to be looking at the first nine verses of Ephesians chapter 6. And this picks up really at the end of chapter 5 in, in what's typically referred to as the household code. And so Paul addresses different family members um, within the church there. And, and so last week, actually the past two weeks, we looked at wives and husbands. And so this week is a continuation of that household code. And so we're going to look at specifically the relationship between children and parents. Specifically, Paul's going to address the fathers. And then we're going to look at the, the relationship between bondservants and masters or, or slaves and masters. And so as we look at the, these next two categories of relationships, there, there's going to be a common theme that runs through these two relationships. And in both of these relationships, one party has authority and the other party is called to obey that authority. And so the sermon title is Obedience and Authority. And the main idea here, the theme that runs through all of these, or these two specific relationships, these two specific situations, is whether one has authority or whether one owes obedience, the foundation for how you live in your specific setting is understanding that your living is pursued in light of the Lord. And so, so he's going to say, whether you're in this state or this state, whether you have authority or you're, you, you owe obedience, regardless, your relationship with the Lord dictates how you carry out your life, how you live in the state that the Lord has you. And so what that means, we'll see this as we go on, is for those in authority, Paul urges them to lead or to use their authority as one who has the Lord as an authority, right? So, so don't see your authority as, as the, the end all of authority. You are still under authority, and you should better use your authority as one under authority. And then for those under authority, Paul's going to urge them to obey their authorities as those who are subject to the Lord, and so in both these situations, Paul's going to say, you are, you are a Christian, you have a new identity, you are in the Lord, and that reality changes how you live in the state that you're in. So that both authority and obedience, how one uses his or her authority, and how, how one offers his or her obedience, both are dependent upon one's relationship with the Lord. And so Paul's going to say, Christian, you're going to find yourself in, in various situations and relationships, and regardless of what situation or relationship you find yourself in, there's all, there is a way that is fitting for you to live, and your Christian identity shapes how you live. Okay, so so that, that's, no, matter, no matter where you are, your relationship with the Lord is going to be played out in your various earthly family relationships. So let's read our passage, Ephesians 6, 6 I'm going to begin in verse 1 and read through verse 9. So Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from a heart, rent, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them 
and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we ask that you would honor this reading of your word and the study of your word. And so, Lord, I specifically ask for those who, who find themselves in these states, whether children or fathers or parents or, or bond servants or masters, employees or employers, Lord, I pray that you would encourage us and instruct us according to your word to live lives according to our calling in our specific state and Lord, for those who are not in any of these states, Lord, I still pray that your word would, would address our heart, Lord, that would, would convict us and conform us into the image of Christ, whom we're all called to be like. And it's in his name we pray, amen. So verses one through nine, there, there's, there's really only two sections. And so the outline here at the outset, we're going to look first at, at the call to children and fathers there in verses one through four. And then second, we'll look at bond servants and masters there in verses five through nine. So, so that's the, the outline. Those are the two relationships that are addressed. So let's start there in verse one with children and fathers. So if you notice here, verse one, Paul begins by addressing the children. So look there at verse one. Verse one, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. He continues verse two, still addressing the children, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And so here's the address to children, right here in verses one through three. And, and in his address to children, there are two main verbs that characterize or are to characterize the children's responsibility to their parents. So the first verb there in verse one, obey. So, so boys and girls, if you're here this morning, say obey. Any boys and girls? Okay, let's try again. Hey, everyone together, let's say obey. Obey. Okay, so the, the first command Two children are obey, and then the second verb, honor, there in verse 2. So those are the two commands that Paul directs directly at children. Now, the first thing, a few things to, to clarify here at the outset. First, notice that Paul does address children. This means that in the hearing of this letter, so, so Paul would write a letter, and it would be read aloud as, as the church at Ephesus gathered, probably in a house, right? But, but as this letter is read, there are children who would, who would qualify under this category. So children would be listening, and not only that, they would be expected to hear and understand what Paul's saying. So when Paul says, children, here's a command, we can imply that there's children gathered who are capable of hearing and understanding what Paul's going to tell them. Now, no one, no one knows for sure, and no commentary sets a, a, a firm stance here. No one knows the exact age range of this category, but when Paul calls for obedience, it's safe to assume that these children are still in the home and find themselves under the same roof, same, part of the same household as their parents. And so these are children. And so, so, so they're, they're, they're living with their parents and they're, they're of the age where they're, they're mentally capable and they're able to understand what Paul is asking them to do. And, and they're able to, uh, to decide whether I'm going to obey or whether I'm not because he's commanding them, do this, which means that, that they, they, they have the ability to heed this command. And so I think it's significant that Paul addresses children who are gathered with the church. Right? And so I think it's right for us to, to have kids, children, gather with us in a, in a corporate setting. Right? This is the case here in Ephesus, and I don't think it's wrong. I don't think we should be quick to be annoyed with kids who are in our worship service. Right? Kids are welcome here, and we want them to be here. And one of the reasons is because children should, should hear the commands given to them. I think this tells us, should influence our, our view of children and membership here at, 
at our church because we, we shouldn't withhold membership from a child until college age because here they were a part of the church and, and we, we would assume that they were accepted members of the community that they gathered with. So Paul addresses them. Now, now second, notice what he expects of these children. So he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. So, so that phrase there, in the Lord, is really important. Obey your parents in the Lord is what Paul says. And so almost every English translation has that phrase translated, in the Lord. Now some look at that and say that what Paul means when he says obey your parents in the Lord, what he means, what some people say is, well, obey your parents who are in the Lord, which would mean obey your parents as long as they're Christian. So, so some people would say, well, Paul's saying, hey, Christian kids, obey your parents if they're Christians. But that's not what Paul means here. That's not, how, that's not why he says in the Lord. In fact, he says in the Lord because Paul's point is Children, you are in the Lord. You are Christian. And because you are Christian, you're to obey your parents. That's the point. I mean, the, the New Living Translation, I think, captures this beautifully. It says, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord. And so Paul implores these children to obey their parents because they, the children, are in the Lord, which means Paul has a category for children who are Christians, and so Paul addresses these children and tells them to obey their parents, and then he places a divine burden upon them. So, so he says, obey your parents in the Lord. This, this is the ground of their obedience. Their relationship with the Lord is the ground for their call to obey. You see that? So, so because they're in the Lord, they must obey their parents, which leads me to say, boys and girls, children that are here, your relationship to the Lord, your relationship with God is expressed or, or is worked out in your relationship with your parents. You need to hear that, boys and girls. In other words, if you claim to follow Jesus, to be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ, but intentionally and regularly disobey your parents, that doesn't go together. Now, now, parents don't get mad at me, right? I'm not saying you have to perfectly obey all day, every day, okay? So, so don't hear me say, pastor said I had to do this all the time, right? But your disposition towards your parents should be that of respect and obedience. That's what a Christian child does in relationship with his or her parents. Following Jesus is hard. It's not gonna be easy. You'll learn that the older you get. And so now you just need to hear, it's not always easy to obey your parents, is it? But following Jesus requires you to do that. So as, as Paul says here in verse 1, as a Christian child, obeying your parents is right, he says. This is right. This is a moral judgment, which means boy and girl, child, disobeying your parents is wrong. So, so these are moral obligations. To do what is right is to obey. Now, of course, if, if your parent, and this goes in any situation where there's a, authority and obedience... Any, any authority figure that requires something requires you to do something that, that violates God's will for your life, you don't obey. Right? So, so that, is, that is the exception here. But by and large, children obey their parents because that's what God has called you to do. And notice here, Paul doesn't say the main reason that it's wrong that you're disobeying your parents. So Paul doesn't say that the main reason that it's wrong is because you're disobeying your parents. Right? So as a Christian, your obedience transcends because I said so. And so. So you don't obey. So when you say, why do I have to do this? So if you're a Christian boy or girl and you're, you're, you're here and your parent tells you to do something, you don't want to do it. And they say, because I said so. Right? That's not why you should obey them. 
right? Paul here says you should obey them because you, in obeying them, are, are honoring the Lord and obeying the Lord, right? You obey your parents because you are subject to the Lord. You obey your parents because you respect Jesus. And so it's right for you to do so as Christians. Children, obey your parents, Paul would say in, in Colossians 3, because this pleases the Lord, and so at the foundation, a life of obedience is a life that pleases the Lord. But obedience isn't the only call that Paul places there on children. Notice there the second verb that we mentioned in verse 2, honor your father and mother. And so Paul continues in, in verse 2, this is a, a second command given to parents, given to children, honor your father and mother. And Paul says, this is the first commandment with a promise. So he's referring all the way back to, to Exodus 20, where the, the Ten Commandments are given. And so when he says this is the first command with a promise, he's saying the first command of the Ten Commandments that, that has a promise. Now, it's also true that this is really the only command with a promise of the Ten. But Paul says this is the first one with a promise. He wants to emphasize the promise, which he continues in verse 3. This is a continu continuation of the quote, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And so this, this, this second command to kids to honor their parents comes from Exodus 20, verse 12. And so in its original context, when, when, when Moses is giving the, the law to the Israelites and he's giving the Ten Commandments, right, the, the, the kids are in a different context. And so when he says that you may have long life in the land, he's, not, he's referring to Israel, the promised land, right? There's, a, there's an old covenant contextual uh, a context there. And so the obedience of children there in, in, in Deuteronomy and in Exodus with the law, the obedience of children would ensure that they'd remain in the land, right? As they're honoring their parents, they're, they're covenant faithful kids. And so that, that's the promise that, that as long as you follow, abide by the law, it's going to go well with you. You're going you're gonna to stay in the land. Now, we know that's not what happened at the end of the day for the Israelites. But Paul here is citing this command in a different context. And, and he's not citing the land promise in the same way. It's more if he's establishing the, the principle here. And in this, Paul, his point is that obedience to parents generally leads to order and stability. So he's not saying, hey, you're going to, you're to these Gentile, mostly Gentile audience, he's not saying, hey, kids, if you obey, you're going to live in Israel for a long time. That's not what he's meaning. So he's pulling it from that context and applying it here, saying, hey, when, when, when you obey your parents, right, there's going to be an order and stability for you. It's going to go well with you. And so the categories of obedience here, as he says, obey your parents and honor your father and mother, these categories are, are very closely tied. Right? And the, these categories, the, the opposite, are also closely uh, connected, disobedience and dishonor. And so, so these are almost, almost identical commands here, to obey and to honor. So this is what Paul calls the children to. Just as in the Old Testament, children who honored or obeyed their parents were blessed with the promise of a full life, so too in the age of the New Covenant, this general principle holds true for obedient children, Christian children. And so while the second command clearly refers to children still at home, we, we can also apply the second command of honoring your parents to children who've left the home. And so I realize a lot of you, most of you, are not still living under the house, under the roof of your parents. Right? But the second command seems to imply much, much longer this call to honor your parents. We can apply this because, and this is why I think we, we have justification to apply this to, to adult kids. I think as, if you're here and your parents are still alive, you're called, I think, by this passage to honor your parents. And we, I, think we can, I think I can legitimately place that burden on you is because Jesus, in, in two instances in Mark, Mark chapter 7 and Mark chapter 10, 
in Mark chapter 7, when, when he's rebuking the Pharisees that have come to him, he rebukes them for not honoring their father and their mother. And he says, right, you, you, you're failing to keep the law. You're not honoring your father and your mother, which, which implies they, they, they're responsible for doing this, even though these are presumably adults, these Pharisees that are coming to him. And so Jesus, something Jesus seems to understand as applying even to grown-ups who are no longer under the authority of their parents was that they're called to honor their father and mother. And again in Mark 10, when Jesus is talking with the rich young ruler, Jesus mentions this command specifically, honor your father and mother, as something that the rich young ruler was still obligated to do. He said, you've heard the law, right? Well, we'll do it, honor your father and mother. And so this is part of the, the law that Jesus mentions to him as things that he's responsible for doing. And so in both these instances, Jesus taught that honoring one's father and mother was something that continued past the childhood years, which I think, I think means that for adult children who have left the home, honoring your parents would entail showing respect and taking care of parents in their old age. I think that's part of what you're called to as a child. You never stop being a child. Some of you realize you never stop being a parent but you never stop being a child as long as your parents are alive. And so I think this call is, is, is directly applicable to some of you today. So honoring your parents is something that, ex, that is expected, even demanded of you, even as you grow older and move out from under their care and direct care. Honoring one's parents is not limited to childhood, adolescence, or even early adulthood. This is a lifelong responsibility, as one commentator says. And in this sense, it's different than obedience, which is limited to childhood and adolescence. Okay, and so some of you just, maybe the application is just honor your father and mother. Honor your father and mother. Care for them, right? They cared for you when you could not provide them anything in return. And at, now that the, the, the tables have turned, you are called to honor them and respect them and care for them. I think that's what honor entails. And some of you, I know you, you've been doing it a long time. So I'd say keep doing it. I can't imagine some of the challenges of seeing a parent decline in the way some of you have seen your parents decline. But, but that honors the Lord. That honors the Lord. And so I would encourage you to keep doing it. Well, then after discussing children, so Paul shifts there in verse 4 of chapter 6 to fathers, to parents. So look there in verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord. So he says, Paul mentions a negative, do not do this, and then a positive. Instead, do this. So, so for the fathers, specifically, he calls them not to do something and then to do something, a negative and a positive. So negative, don't, don't provoke your children to anger. Don't exasperate them. That's the negative call. Instead, positively, bring them up. Raise them, nurture them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now notice, in addressing the party that has authority, Paul is careful to instruct the fathers not to use their authority in harmful or selfish ways. And so that's what he says. So, so there are, the culture would have recognized that the fathers had the authority, but he's gonna address how they use their authority. Now, culture would say, hey, use your authority however you want. You've got it, no one can question it. But Paul says, hey, you have authority, but you better use it rightly. And so he addresses the party with authority. And so he says, fathers, as the ones with authority in this relationship, as the ones to whom your children are called to obey, don't use your authority in such a way that provokes your children. Don't use them in a way that makes them angry. Paul is warning the fathers, do not abuse your authority. Which, I mean, as a father, personally, it's hard, it's not hard to see how this command is so easily violated. Right? This command, don't provoke your children to anger. I know what it is to provoke my children to anger. And I know how hard it is 
not to violate this command. It's easy to provoke our children. The words we use, the tones we use, the actions we take, right? All of these are ways that fathers can provoke their children. But what, this, what Paul says is fathers don't do this. And so one commentator summarizes this passage effectively rules out, listen fathers, rules out reactionary flare-ups, overly harsh words, insults, sarcasm, nagging, demeaning comments, inappropriate teasing, unreasonable demands, and anything else that can be perceived as provocative. I mean, ow, ow. That, I mean, that's, that's, that is a, that's a convicting charge. Do not provoke your children to anger. It just includes all of these things. And so the command is given explicitly to the fathers, but the responsibility falls on mothers as well, doesn't it? We, we can't excuse moms here. And as parents who are responsible for, for raising the children, right, the mothers are, are, are called to the same thing, not to provoke their children. So while it's probably more normal for fathers to lose their tempers and provoke their children, mothers are not exempt from this command because they too can fall prey to provoking their kids to anger. But notice something else about this. I, I didn't notice this at first, but consider what may have been expected, at least culturally, regarding the father-child relationship. So considering the nature of the cultural setting of Paul's day, it may have seemed more likely or at least have been more appropriate for Paul to give this command to children regarding their fathers. So it would have made sense for Paul to command children, children, don't provoke your fathers to anger. Right? That, okay, I can get on board with that. Right? That falls on them. They better not provoke me. But that's not what Paul says. In other words, Paul doesn't say, children, don't rebel against your fathers, don't disobey, because then they're going to get angry. Paul doesn't do that. If Paul would have pursued that line of argument, at least us dads would have had an excuse for our anger, right? It's their fault. They're provoking me to anger, but that's not a, an excuse. Paul doesn't give fathers that excuse. He doesn't give me that excuse. Instead, Paul's thinking there is no excuse for a father who blows up in anger at his children. There's no excuse for the Christian father to provoke his children to anger. He can't say, well, they did it. They provoked me. Instead, the Christian father who, who loses it, loses temper, speaks a harsh word to his kids, instead ought to ask himself, well, in what ways did I, did I provoke them? Well, where, where have I gone wrong in this that led them to respond this way and, and me to respond? So negatively, do not provoke your children to anger, Paul says. But that's not where he stops. He doesn't, he doesn't leave the you fathers there. He continues positively, but here's what you're to do. Don't do this, but, but here's what you're to do instead. Positively, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The verb translated there, bring them up, is the same verb that was used just if you look back up in, in verse 29 of chapter 5, when Paul's talking about husbands caring for their own bodies, and he uses the word feeding or nourishing. That's the same verb that's used in verse 29 of chapter 5 here as he talks to fathers bringing up their children. And so the translation bring, bring them up doesn't convey this, the, the fullness of, of what I think Paul means, which is fathers bring them up, feed them, nurture them, take care of them. And the substance of the nurturing, Paul would say, is the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Or maybe your translation says the training and admonition of the Lord. Or maybe the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So Paul says, don't provoke them to anger, but rather nurture them, feed them with the instruction and discipline of the Lord. 
And so these, this, this, this discipline and instruction, this is the call of the Father to, to instruct and warn and train and discipline and admonish his children. That's, that's the call. But this discipline and instruction, it's not just to be a good citizen, not just to be a good schoolmate, but it's, it's to be a Christian. Instruct them in the Lord. That, that's what characterizes the discipline and the instruction. So Paul here lays on the shoulder of the fathers not only the responsibility of raising their children to be decent and responsible people, but of training and instructing them in the ways of the Lord. And so it's not enough just to raise well-adjusted citizens. And so that, that's, that should not be your parenting goal. If you've got kids now who are raising kids, don't let them get off with that. Hey, I just want them to, to function in society and, and be a contributor. That's good, and we should do that, but that is not the extent of our aim as parents. If you've got great-grandchildren, right, and, and your grandchildren aren't raising them the right way, challenge them with this. Because they are to raise them in the discipline and instruction in the Lord, right? That is what's to qualify the instruction. The Christian parent is called to raise their child in the Lord, which means we as parents are doing our best to teach our children about God, raising our children to follow him. As one translation says, bring your children up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. So the Lord is the one who sets our syllabus and our curriculum, the scriptures. We are, we are training our children in the Lord. So children, specifically the father, you're responsible for raising your kids according to the instruction and admonition that proceeds from the Lord himself. And that's how he, that's how he closes talking to fathers. And he, he transitions. Let's look there. Secondly, verses five through nine, the bond servants and the masters. So Paul turns to a second relationship. Again, this, this is a relationship of obedience and authority. So look there, verses 5 through 9. Bondservants and masters. Now, some of your translations, the first thing we need to say is some of your translations don't say bondservants and masters. So maybe your translation says slaves and masters or servants and masters. And so as we, as we transition to this, to this second relationship, right, this relationship doesn't exist really in this exact form now today. So we have to ask ourselves, well, what, what's the relationship that Paul's talking about here? And what did it look like as Paul's addressing the situation in his day? So first, recognize that, that it, is, it is right, a right translation to say slaves and masters. That is a correct translation. So we have to recognize here as we, as we enter into Paul's address and discussion of this relationship, we have to recognize that the institution of slavery was an accepted and deeply established part of the Roman society that Paul was writing to. It was part of the culture. And what's more, over one-third of the population of Rome in the first century was slaves. Do you know what? 33% of all people in the Roman Empire are slaves. So it's a massive group of people. And so as Paul's writing to, to a church, there, there's a, a, a percentage, a large percentage of people who this is going to speak directly to. So, so it was a recognized institution of the day. So Paul is addressing the issue of slavery. He is calling those as slaves to treat their masters a certain way. And he's also calling those as masters to treat their slaves in a certain way. He is, he is addressing slavery. We can't just say, oh, no, it's not the same. It's not slavery, really. No, it is slavery that he's addressing. But, and here's the but, we have to recognize that slavery in first century Rome was different than slavery in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries here in colonial America. Okay, so there's a difference. It's still slavery, 
But it is different, and, and I'm not going to go into the differences, but there were differences between the slavery that Paul's writing into and the slavery that, that our history is filled with, or as a nation at least. Now that doesn't justify what's happening in Rome, but it's just to say that things were different, and we have to be careful not to read modern slavery back into a situation that Paul's writing into, because it's not the same. So, so we have to avoid that. Nevertheless, I think it must be said that slavery, regardless of its cultural context or time frame, is always morally wrong. So slavery is always morally and ethically wrong. So we can say that, and I think Scripture says that. However, Paul doesn't ever write to Christians in the first century and say, revolt, get out from under slavery, fight for your freedom at all costs. Paul doesn't say that. He just doesn't. It was part of the culture. One commentator said it was as much a part of the culture as the birds in the trees. So it's just part of how Rome is operating. So when Paul's writing in to that situation, if he tells, hey, if you're a Christian and you're a slave, just run away, revolt, right? That is going to be detrimental to the Christian cause, right? Because everyone's saying, hey, those Christians, they don't obey authority. They're bad citizens, they're not good, but Paul says, hey, we are good citizens. We're good slaves. We, do, we obey authority, and, and that allows the gospel to spread. So Paul doesn't ever say, end it. He doesn't ever condemn it, but Paul never, ever justifies it. He never says, hey, this is right, or this is good. He's just writing into a context where it's, he, he assumes its existence, he assumes its presence in society and he helps believers understand what it means to live as Christians within this state. So he's not saying, hey, this is justifiable. So, so when, we have, when we have Christians who are writing in, in the 1700s and 1800s who, who are saying, no, 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 God would have me own slaves so that I could evangelize them, that, that's not okay. And so so we, we have to condemn that because it's never morally acceptable to own another person. That goes against the, the, the human creation, right? Created in God's image. But Paul here is writing into this situation. So he's addressing slaves and masters. He's not justifying the practice. He's simply saying, hey, I know that some of you, here's a household code, and I know that some of you are going to be wives and husbands, some are parents and kids. I know some of you are going to be slaves and masters, and so I'm going to address you. And so that's what he's doing in this particular relationship. He wants them to know that they have obligations to serve the Lord according to their place in life. They're where they are. Which is why, so when we get to the application here at the end of the section, it's a much broader application than simply slaves and masters. At the end of the day, these verses apply in terms of submission to any lawfully constituted authority or, or any worker-employer relationship. Okay, so I think the principle applies much more broadly than, than slaves and masters. And so I know many of you are retired, and if you aren't and you have a job, these verses re- apply to you. Okay, so don't hear me say, oh, no, I'm not a slave. I'm not a, I'm not a slave owner. This doesn't apply to me. No, we can't pass over that because there, there are principles established here that I think do speak directly to us. And so Paul here addresses slaves, and he addresses them first, and that, that is the party that was most likely to, to be abused. So he, wives, children, slaves, he's addressing them first, which is a, a message in and of itself. So he's addressing these slaves as ethically responsible persons, but, but he's also saying that, that you are as much members of this community as your masters. Yeah, I'm addressing you. Now, I'm not addressing your master and saying, hey, take care of them. No, I'm addressing you because as Paul's writing, he's assuming that children are going to be there, wives are going to be there, and slaves are going to be there, which, which is significant. 
They're going to be part of the church body. And, and what's even more amazing is that the slaves and their masters are both assumed to be in the same body. And are supposed to treat others in similar ways. Look there down at verse 9. I mean, this, this is shocking. So verse 9, he goes through all these addresses to the slaves or to the bond servants. Verse 9, masters, what does he tell them to do? Do the same to them. Isn't that shocking? Do the same to them. So he's calling the, the masters to treat the slaves in the same way he's called the slaves to treat the masters. Do the same to them, which means that his call to masters is the same as his call to slaves. And so he's calling with both parties, calling both parties to deal with each other similarly. This, this is the idea of mutual submission. And so, so think about that culturally. Applying mutual submission to slaves and slave owners was a startling redefinition of slavery, but that's what, exactly what Paul does here. So, so what does he call these, these slaves to, the bond servants to? So look there first, he says, obey your masters. Obey your masters. How? With fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. And so Paul commands these Christian slaves to obey. Obey with a sense of fear and trembling. Not, not a fear because of, of what might happen to them, but just a fear and respect that are rooted in the position of authority that their masters have over them. And so obey your masters, he says. Obey them with fear with trembling, with, with a sincere heart. Obey them and really do it. Seek to obey them, he would say, to the slaves. And then this is where Paul breaks from cultural expectations, right? Everyone would expect their slaves to obey their masters, but Paul not only calls for obedience, but he gets behind the obedience into the motivation for obedience. So Paul says, it's your relationship with Christ that, that calls you to obey your master, he says, obey and serve your masters with the same devotion that you serve Christ. That's what he says there. With a sincere heart as you would Christ. So serve, obey them as you would Christ. It's a relationship with Christ that dictates how they live. Paul continues, verse 6, don't serve by way of eye service or as people pleasers. So don't just, don't just obey when the master's around. Don't just obey so that others get a good impression of you but instead serve as slaves of Christ with pure motive, serving whether anyone sees or not. Serve wholeheartedly because that's what you're called to do. Obey wholeheartedly, willingly. Because, notice verse seven, their service is done not ultimately to their masters, but to the Lord. They're to serve willingly and wholeheartedly as to the Lord, Paul says. So Paul wants Christian slaves to have an attitude of understanding their service as to their human masters as a service done for the Lord himself. And notice there in verse 8, the service is done to the Lord, the service that is done to the Lord will not go unseen or unrewarded. So think of how encouraging that might have been. In, in, in Peter, there's a similar encouragement. If you suffer for doing well, Peter would say, good, good, there's a reward for you. And so similarly, Paul says here, that although Here's a quote from one commentator. Although they may face arduous days of difficult work and be asked to do thankless tasks, Paul encourages these Christian slaves that the Lord notices all that they do and they can be assured of a future reward. So, so what, they're, what they're doing is seen even if their earthly master doesn't see it. So he says, don't be discouraged. Serve as unto the Lord because the Lord isn't going to forget or turn a blind eye to your service. And then he turns verse 9 to the masters by simply saying, as I mentioned, masters do the same to them. So that many of the attitudes and actions of the slaves to their masters should also characterize the attitudes of the, and actions of the masters towards their slaves. And as I said, this is not normal for Roman slave owners. 
These masters were to treat their slaves, Paul says, with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart as to Christ. And specifically, stop your threatening, he says. So just as the slaves, right, render service wholeheartedly, so you think a temptation common, cultural common expectation of slaves was to be lazy, the cultural common, common cultural expectation of slave owners is to threaten and abuse and be harsh. And he says, stop your threatening, because that's not in accord with, with your calling. And he says, he, to, to, to motivate them to stop their threatening, he brings their relationship with the Lord into the situation. They're, they may be the master in, in this situation, but Paul says, but, but you are not your own master. You have a master, and he deals impartially, so you better do the same. And so that's what he says, that as a servant of the Lord, you're to deal with your servants accordingly, because you're always going to have to give an account for how you treated your servant. And so Paul places this call on the, on the master's and that goes far beyond this ethic, moves far beyond the golden rule. So he doesn't say, hey, treat them how you want to be treated. He says, treat them as you would treat the Lord. And that's a, that's a high bar for the masters. Treat them as, as you would treat the Lord. It, it changes how these masters deal with their servants. And so that's, that's, that's the final close there of, of Paul in this, this household code, which concludes our time. So let me just end there. I have one final application here, and then we're, we're done. Because I think this final application applies to all of us. So if you're here and you're a Christian, here's an application for you to take away, and that's simply living your life as a servant of Christ. Now, that, that's the call for you. As you go home, aim to live as a servant of Christ. And so understanding this whole verses 1 through 9 the lordship of Christ is foundational to understanding this passage, right? And to understanding the various attitudes and duties attached to the different roles. And you could go all the way back to, to the end of chapter five. And Paul's point, the foundation is that those who have been born again, those who have been given new identities in Christ, Christians, are to live differently in light of what's happened. In light of being born again, in light of becoming a Christian, things change so that children and parents and slaves and masters all live in those specific roles as new people, as Christians. And Christian children and Christian parents and Christian slaves and Christian masters ought to live discernibly different lives than those around them. That's what Paul's saying. You're to live different. You're to live according to your calling. That's his whole point here from the end of, or even from the beginning of chapter four in through this section. And so the assumption is that no relation is merely a relation. So think about your neighbors, think about your coworkers, think about your friends, think about your kids. No relation is merely a relation. It's a context for you to relate to Christ. So how are you treating your neighbors, right? Is Christ involved in that interaction with your neighbors or that person that cuts you off, right? Where's Jesus there? So no relation is merely a relation. It's a context for relating to Christ. And no job is merely work. No job is merely work. It's a context for serving Christ. And so we've all been placed in certain contexts, certain relational settings. And in those contexts and settings, we are to live as servants of Christ. Right? We are slaves of Jesus with the Apostle Paul. And so how we carry ourselves in those contexts is a reflection of our relationship with Christ. And so you should simply ask yourself, how am I relating to Christ in all of these circumstances? How am I representing Christ? How am I relating to Christ? 
And so as one commentator said, the most important application of this text is the realization that we are slaves of Christ. We belong to him and we serve him. If we take seriously that he is the origin and recipient of every act of all our work, that takes on meaning and our treatment of people changes. Our work takes on meaning and our treatment of people changes. And so we live our lives in relation to Christ as his servants. And so whether you're a child or a parent, a father, a supervisor, a high school student, a middle school student, a shipyard worker, if you're any of those or anything likewise, this passage addresses you. You're to live your life as a servant to Christ. And you do that not outside of your current status, but in your current status. You serve Christ as a child. You serve Christ as a wife, as a husband, as a boss, as a worker. And so that's the call. Serve Christ in the place that he has you. And for those of you that are retired, right, you're not off the hook here. Some of you are thinking, great, I'm sure God, I'm past those days. You're not. And while you may not be in any official work, employer, or parent-child relationship, the text also addresses you because the principle here is your relationship to Christ changes how you treat people in general. And so if you're, a, if you're retired, you are still interacting with people, and you're a servant of Christ, and that relationship with Christ is expressed in how you treat others. And so Paul's in, implicit in Paul's command here is the assumption that there are no people whom we may treat as unimportant. And so hear that. And I know as you get older, right, you, you regard the, the younger with more and more disdain, right? Well, that's not allowed for the servant of Christ. The teenager who may have happened to roll into church one morning is important, and you should treat them as a servant of Christ. Or maybe your neighbor who has a loud car that drives by your house, Right? Treat him or her as a servant of Christ. You're to care for them and move towards them because you're, you're a representative of Christ. You serve Christ. So anyone you interact with, anyone you come across, you as a servant of Christ are to treat them as you would the Lord. You're to relate to them in light of your relationship with the Lord. And what you do and how you do it matters because all of life is lived in, to, and for the Lord. That, that's what it means to be a Christian. And so in closing, here, here's Paul's command, exhortation from, from Colossians 3, where he says, whatever you do, so hear this, Christian, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. May, may that be what we aim to do. Let's pray as we close.